You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. Seven years. We discussed that back on January 17th when I posted that episode number 272. And we've had some really awesome episodes since. I've had a lot of feedback. More feedback than I normally get, in fact, from these. So I have an email address set up specifically for y'all from sobriety to recovery at gmail.com. Feel free to email me there. You can also send me messages through Instagram um, at from sobriety to recovery. And I try to check that regularly. I've been off social media for so long. I'm trying to figure out a way to dip my toe back into it. And I end up watching videos of pandas. <laughs> so I go on there and I'm like, hey, I should record something. And then I watch pandas sliding down <laughs> slides. <laughs> How are you all doing out there? It has been a wild, wild ride for me these last couple of weeks. And I knew it was going to be a wild ride for me. So I went ahead and I banked the last handful of episodes that y'all have listened to. So since number 272, uh, when or was it 271, when I discussed my seven years of sobriety, uh, 272, seven things to avoid in early sobriety, 273, how to support someone in addiction recovery, and then 274, the price is goodbye, things to stop doing in your addiction recovery, 274, great episodes. These are the ones I'm talking about getting feedback, and I recorded them all and banked them and let them just sort of drip out for you while I was going through everything I've been going through. And so let's discuss that a little bit, because this is going to be a bit of a random review, and if you are new to the show, you're going to think I'm just rambling on, and for those of you who have been listening for a long time, you will know without a doubt I'm rambling on, (laughs) and I will get to a point, and I got a lot to talk about. So quickly about um, some of the things that we're going to cover in this episode. So there's been some mantras that I have been repeating to myself over and over and over again for the last three, four weeks, and I can't wait to go over them, but a brief review, uh, just do the damn thing is one of the mantras that I have been repeating to myself. Will I remember this in four days? That's a question I've asked myself. Uh, Something I've said to multiple members of the tribe and other clients and just people in general is, I don't care about the pain. I look forward to the healing. And then if I cannot affect it or direct it, I accept it. These have been coming up a lot over the last month or so. And so let me explain why. So I did just finish the term for my ethical a course um, for my master's degree to become a clinical mental health counselor, uh, fancy words for therapist, I have really started to explore the idea of getting a doctorate. Uh, I just don't see why I should stop. Now, let's wait. Uh, this is class number three I'm in right now of, I think, 24 of these things. I'm not done with school till 2027. So that's a long way away. And currently, I'm actually learning about theories of psychology, and we are definitely going to get into that. 
So in the time that I finished up that class, and I don't know if I had a chance to mention that or not. I'm not sure what I discussed in some of these past episodes. I did end up getting a 996 out of 1,000. I busted my ass on that and only missed four points. I missed one question on the test, and I lost some points for getting a participation answer in a day late. And so now we have started up the theories of psychology and coming right out of the gate with heavy hitters, Freud, Young, Adler. I mean, right out of the gate, just throwing down the gauntlet. And uh, I think I've gotten one ten out of one ten so far with the big dog, which is what I call the weekly essay. The big dogs do Wednesday night at midnight. So uh, I'm on course to do well. And I also realize that it's going to take a lot of uh, intestinal fortitude and perseverance because these courses are not easy. They really do make sure we are prepared. And one of the interesting things that I have really begun to notice as far as the patterns, the way these classes are laid out, is they will have you read over this information so many times, you don't, I don't, seemingly have to try to memorize it as much as it just ends up being read so many times that it gets internalized. And that was a really big realization for me to have over the last week or two. Because when I first opened up this book, I was like, oh my goodness, I love me some Freud, love me some Carl Jung. You'll know Carl Jung's work from the Myers-Briggs test and then Adolf Adler. And just, you know, I mean, who doesn't know about Sigmund Freud? So you, I, let me just bring this back to the first person. I want to be able to memorize all of this stuff. And I realize that that's not possible whenever they're asking us to read 70, 80 pages a week. It really, it's it's more of a, of a skim, get stuck on a page, get fascinated by a page, daydream about a page, get back to it and realize that 30 minutes have just passed and I've only read four pages. So it's a lot of uh, highlighting the digital book that they give us and, and just knowing that I'll end up rereading it oh, so many times, just let it go, it'll come. And so that's what I have noticed over this last assignment. I had to read so much over and over and over again of the same 30 pages on each Freud and Young and Adler that eventually some of this information just got into my brain. And one of the really fascinating things about me and what I've noticed about myself in sobriety recovery is that I can get swept up in the panic, in the anxiety, in the stress of these big dog essays. And I can see all of them that are coming up. All of the assignments are available to us. You just aren't able to turn them in until the due date. But I can read ahead and I can know exactly all of the essays that are coming. So I'm able to know the amount of workload that I'll be taking on on any given week. And when the new week starts, which is every Thursday morning at 6 a.m., then it's like I go in there on Friday and I do all my research for the discussion questions, which are two, two of those at 250 words a pop. And then there's the big dog, which is usually about 1,250 to 750 words with at least six, if not 10 um, scholarly resources. So you've got to go into the library and find all these smarty pants people who've had papers published, of which one day I will be one of those people because that's part of the requirements to get this master's degree. And I digress about that part. So you're doing a ton of research in order to be able to back up the the discussion questions and the essay and your thesis and what you're writing. And so 
I get swept up with the anxiety, the panic, and the stress because at the very beginning, I've just got a blank page and I don't know where it's going to go. And I'm not really sure how it's going to lead me where I want it to go. I, I have no clue. Blank page. And so I just get on the Googles and take the questions that are asked and throw it in there and just see what the Googles throws up. And if you go to Google Scholar, it starts to throw out a really great amount of information. And I just start to sort of piece it together. And I just am like, okay, just I start writing. And so when I say just do the damn thing, I could allow the stress and the anxiety to overwhelm me. And certainly there have been times where I found myself dropping and giving myself 25 push-ups, and then setting a timer. And every 25 minutes, um, I do this, uh, what is it called with that little egg timer? I don't remember the name of it, but I read something about a tomato egg timer way of doing your work where it's like every 25 minutes you stop and you do something active for five minutes. And so I can't, Papaloma? it's got a P in it maybe somebody out there is listening to this right now and you're yelling at your device being like it's this <laughs> it's this <laughs> but anyways it was the thing I read was somebody uses a tomato timer and for 25 minutes you study and you do whatever you're doing and then for five minutes you get up and do something physical so every 25 minutes I do 25 push-ups and it just gets me out of my head for a moment and then of course I've got the treadmill under my standing desk so I'll get on there and do research and walk t- <laughs> 15,000 steps in like an hour and a half, not even paying attention. And then I get all the research done and I'm able to start piecing together the essays and the discussion questions. So when I say just do the damn thing, I want to stress for all of y'all that we get stressed out. We have anxiety. We can have panic attacks, whatever that is for you. The way I work my way through that is by actually working through it. Not sitting there, getting trapped in my brain, daydreaming about what's going on. And don't get me wrong, I definitely do a fair amount of daydreaming. So there's certain music I utilize to pull me out of that. Right now, it's been a lot of Luke Bryan. He's a country musician. I go to Spotify and just put on Luke Bryan. It's just nothing but his songs. And for some reason, that dude's cadence just allows me to sit there and write and write and write. And I don't even pay attention to the music. Whereas like, Rock music, if I get tired of throwing some Guns N' Roses or some Killers or some Arcade Fire or definitely not Muse. God, I can't write to Muse. Um, I would just get caught up in the lyrics. But with Luke Bryan, I can sit there and listen to that Buy Dirt thing or uh, one of all my friends said. I can listen to that song on repeat for like four hours and I just get lost in the work. So when I say just do the damn thing, I want you to catch yourself getting caught up in your mind and in your brain and realizing that being up in there. It might be great for conjuring up wonderful ideas, but you got to get your fingers to the typing. You got to get your feet to the moving. You got to get your hands to the picking up of the thing and doing something that getting trapped in your brain isn't going to serve you. Yes, planning is great, right? Planning is priceless, but plans are worthless. You've got to start taking action to find out what the hurdles are going to be, where there might be some struggles, where there's going to be some detours necessary. Go back to my seven powerful principles that I talked about not too long ago. Flexibility is in there. And the reason why flexibility is in there is because we, and it is number 262, and is the seven powerful principles episode. Because you can cultivate a growth mindset. You can, uh, it it is, 
cultivating a growth no it's cultivating courage it's developing a growth mindset cultivating courage being decisive making a decision and taking action being disciplined to take those actions day in and day out no matter how mundane they are and then it's embracing flexibility because there's going to need to be flexibility no matter what you do so just do the damn thing so you can figure out where to flex from uh, another one that's been coming up a lot will i remember this in 4 days a lot of you know that I am going in, I got went back into the restaurant world to supplement my income to help pay for this master's degree because it's like $50,000 and I am not in the mood to be $50,000 in debt, especially since the interest accumulates every single day. Here's something that's super dick about what the government's doing with student loans. They're, it's like a 7.8% interest. Now, I don't really care where any of y'all stand on the political ways because I have no desire to discuss that on this episode or in this show in general. Um, that's bit me in the ass one too many times. And honestly, everybody, everybody, whether you're Republican or Democrat, could be suffering from addiction. And I don't want my points of view to interfere with the messages. But I'll say this about this idea of giving everybody back their money for their student loans. I took out those loans very well knowing that I needed to pay them back. So I have not, no problem with the $40,000 in debt I am for UF's degree or the $50,000 in debt I'll be in because of this master's degree. What I do not think is anywhere near, I would say, in, integrity-based is charging students 7.8% interest for student loans. That's asinine, and it's asshole. Right. Okay. I get that banks need to make some money, but when I first got these loans back in the day, they was two point three percent interest. Now it's seven point eight. Stop trying to give me back my forty thousand dollars that I willfully signed up to spend to get a degree at University of Florida and drop the fucking interest rate. Because it is bullshit that these people are making money hand over fist on us with loans that clearly, if we had the money, we would not have taken out loans. So do you think we're going to have the money to be able to pay these things back in a timely manner to not have a humongous accumulation of interest? It's just a total dick move. Anyways, that's my soapbox on that. I signed up for the loans. I'm fine paying them back. Stop charging me 7.8% interest that accumulates on day one. I've already accumulated two thousand. I will have accumulated. I'm at a thousand. I'm already at a thousand dollars accumulated, and I've only had these loans since August. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that basically means every year I'm going to be gaining three thousand plus, because it, the loan will continue to grow and the interest will continue to accumulate. I have no choice but to figure out a way to start paying off at least the interest every single month so that the principal, I can actually get to the principal. Anyways, moving on. So will I remember this in four days? I went back to the restaurant and sometimes it gets super stressful in there. And it's very interesting because this restaurant has a very split um, staff. Some of the people are older and have children and some of the people are young enough to be their children. And I haven't worked in a restaurant like this since the 90s. Um, when I went to Los Angeles, I was working in hotels where, for the most part, it was actors and people who had decided to forego the traditional lifestyle and go to Hollywood and seek fortune and fame. And I was one of them. And therefore, I wasn't around a whole lot of people just living the life. And so it can get stressful there. And a lot of people will create drama that is highly unnecessary. And one of the things I, you know, I'll say to some of the people, or I'll just say to myself, will I remember this in four days? Will I remember being quadruple sat four different times on the same shift? 
I mean, I'm remembering it now because I'm talking about it on the show. But in a week, two weeks, if somebody's like, remember that one Sunday when you got all those tables? I'll be like, oh, yeah. But it's not affecting me emotionally anymore. So maybe the quote should be, well, this would be affecting me emotionally in four days. It won't be affecting me emotionally in four days. It's affecting me emotionally now, but it's not going to affect me emotionally in four days. The money I made serving those tables, that's going to affect me because it's going to end up in my bank account. It's going to pay down some bills. It's going to help take care of my student loans. So that that's going to have a positive effect on me in four days. But the emotions that I was going through on Sunday as I was getting quadruple sat back to back to back to back. I mean, literally, one minute it's 9.30, the next minute it's 1 o'clock. No idea where the time went. I just went into Jesse mode. So I want you to ask yourself that. Maybe will I remember this in four days is, is a little vague, but it could be will this, uh, will this emotionally affect me in four days? Will I still feel the same way about this in four days that I feel about it now? Will this still be bothering me? Because here's the thing about things bothering you. If you blow them up and make them huge, and I'm not going to say out of proportion because I can't decide what proportion it is to your unique experience, your own internal representations of your life. You experience something and you are going to make as big a deal of it as you believe you want to at the time, right? Somebody cuts you off and you might be like, you're flipping them off, you're honking your horn. Maybe you're one of those people who decides that chasing them down the street's a good idea. It's not, but you might be one of those people. Stop doing that. Um, Here's the thing. You just took a moment where somebody, they cut you off. That sucks. They put your life in danger. They pissed you off. I don't know. They made you spill your coffee. You were texting on your phone. You almost rear ended it. Whatever the hell's going on. But let's really step back for a moment. Wave at the person and say, good luck. Hope you get to where you're going safely because that right there was not safely. And just laugh about it. Fake laugh. Like, <laughs> I hope you get there safely. Oh, yes, I hope you get there safely. And just do a nice little wave and let it go. Because if you blow it out of proportion, you honk your horn, you flip them off, you start chasing them down the street, they stop, you stop. Now it turns into a whole fucking ordeal. Now who's going to jail? Who's going to the hospital? Because it's not going to end well. Somebody, You and somebody else gets out of the car to scream at each other in the middle of the street any more than it would bode well if you yelled at the deli counter person for cutting your meat too thick or yelled at the person next to you in your cubicle for repeating corporate accounts payable Nina speaking just a moment over and over and over freaking again during a shift. I get it. There are annoyances in life. But will you honestly remember it in four days? Will it be affecting you emotionally the way that it is right now in four days? And four days is arbitrary. It could be two, three, seven, 17. I don't freaking care. I want you to stop yourself from that stimulus to your reaction and ask yourself, is this going to matter in four freaking days? Because 99.9% of the things that are happening in our lives will not be affecting us emotionally the way they are now in four days. And that's why when I get the quadruple sat, or my knee is killing me, or my mouth, and we're going to get into that in a moment, it's like, okay, is this going to be bothering me in four days? Because if I take something that's rather small, that could be dealt with in the moment, be a little bit more rational about it. Allow the experience to travel through the emotional ghetto. You know, we talk about it, the limbic system and all that. If I allow it to just travel through there and then get up to the prefrontal cortex where the rational mind can help make a better decision, where I can be more wise-minded, 
there's a very good chance that I'll be able to just maneuver right through this. And in a few days, I won't even remember it unless somebody distinctly makes me recall it. So when we say just do the damn thing, it's working through that stress. It's working through the panic attack. It's working through the anxiety. It's going, the frustrations, the fears, the overwhelms. It's just taking a step. Me typing out words on the document, it's a step. And before I know it, the essay is just writing itself because it starts to piece itself together. Same with, well, I remember this in four days. Well, I feel the same way I feel right now about this in four days. If you take something small and you blow it up huge, you are just begging yourself to keep it in your life when it didn't need to be. And yes, there are going to be those things. Oh, let's play the devil's advocate and let's bring the caveat in here. Yeah, there's going to be certain things that are absolutely going to be of a certain level of importance that they're going to stick around on their own for four days just because that's the timeline it takes in order to come up with a solution and put it into action. But a lot of the things that you're going through in life, a lot of the things I'm going through in life, the garbage cans not being taken out on Tuesday night so the garbage man could get them. Okay, well, we only throw two bags in there anyways every single week, and we've got two of those garbage cans that can hold six bags each. If we miss it one week, it's not a reason to get into a pissing contest about who was supposed to take it out to the driveway. Okay, so it left some dishes in the sink, or the dishwasher didn't get unloaded, or we didn't vacuum the floor. All right, let's just go get the vacuum now and vacuum the floor. Like, There's things that do not need to be arguments, and I'm very good about this with my girlfriend of not letting the little things mount up. What's the issue? Okay, what can we do? Can we do something right now? Can we do something right now? No. If I cannot affect it or direct it, I accept it. Okay, we can't do something about it right now. The garbage is just going to take six more days. Yeah, it may smell out there. And it's also 45 feet from our house, and we never go by that garbage can. It doesn't matter if it smells. Now, if I find a bunch of bears living in the garbage can, eating off of the garbage we leave in there, we'll have that conversation probably more to the point of, can we invite the bears into our house and let them be pets? (laughs) But overall, it's not really that important if we miss a week of the garbage. Will I remember this in four days? Will it affect me emotionally like it is right now in four days? Um, Another one, and I did just bring in if I cannot affect it or direct it, I accept it because that was also an episode. I think it was back when I was doing the dailies for the month of December. Um, I did one of those. um, Let's see, not acceptance. It's okay to be sad. Releasing the pain. Stepping out of the storm. Why is there some really good ones back here? Okay, well, I'm not finding it, and I don't want to sit here and be verbally going through the the archive while I'm talking to you guys. So the third one, I don't care about the pain. I look forward to the healing. The reason I came up with this one is one of my tribe members, um, the one who was in Salem, who's now down in St. Augustine, so now we're going to start calling him Augustine, um, he was asking me about my mouth. So here's the deal. Back in the day, uh, in my 20s, when I used to really in the height of my cocaine use was in my 20s, um, I would take the cocaine, and anybody who's ever done this will know what a nummy is, and I would take the powder and I'd rub it all over my gums and everything and just like numb up my whole mouth. It was a thing to do. And one of my little OCD tendencies, my little things I used to do is I would get my toothbrush out and I would brush I would just sit there and brush my teeth with my toothbrush. Now, I was of the ignorance that a hard bristled toothbrush was going to better remove plaque from my teeth. Um, If you don't know much about the 
the coarseness, the hardness of a bristle toothbrush, I would like to alert you to the fact that I don't know why they make hard bristle toothbrushes. All my dentists have told me that soft bristle is fine as long as you're brushing regularly. And they have yet to give me a valid reason for why anyone should be using a hard bristle toothbrush, let alone me. So now I use soft bristle toothbrushes, but in my 20s, I used the hardest bristle toothbrush I could find because I thought it got my teeth cleaner. Well, when you sit there and neurotically brush your teeth for hours on end while you're snorting cocaine, apparently over the course of time, it can damage the gums, causing them to recede. And it did that, and it has been doing that. Because now, back in the day, I caused the gums to recede inside. And so it was causing these pockets. And then bacteria would get down in there, and they'd eat away at the, my jawbone. And so now they're deteriorating my teeth. It's this whole thing. It requires like a periodontal surgeon for your teeth. It is wickedly painful. And so I've been needing this now for about the last 10, 12 years, but it's a very expensive procedure. So I found a dentist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham School of Dentistry, who's already a, graduated as a dentist and now he wants to become a periodontist. And so and they do it for a fraction of the cost. And they've got older dentists watching over them. But, you know, you are letting somebody who's maybe only done the procedure six or seven times operate on your mouth. But you're also saving yourself thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I've already done similar work with University of Florida School of Dentistry and the USC School of Dentistry. So if you have dental issues and you are near a university that has a school of dentistry, I would recommend that you Google them and get on their docket because they are very helpful and they do great, amazing work. And I am now in surgery one of four to have my gums cut back so that my teeth can be cleaned properly by me and by my dentist whenever I have the hygienist do the cleanings because seven and eight millimeter pockets are too deep for the utensils to get into. So they're cutting back four and five millimeters um, in the back of my jawline around my molars. It's about a three or four hour procedure and they rough your face up very much and then they sew it back up, all your gums. They literally, there's sutures through my gums and everything. And I'm sorry if you're getting queasy on this. I'll move past the that part and just say that it's it was not very painful the first two or three days, but it has been excruciating the last four days. And I think it's because the swelling's going down and the sutures are loosening and now I'm trying my best to only eat soft foods, but you know how that goes with the mouth. Inevitably, you're going to end up putting food over there. So anyways, one of the tribal members, Augustine, was saying, you know, something about don't puss out, you got to push through. And I'm like, of course I'm going to push through. I've been looking forward to this for 12 years. And that's where I came up with, I don't care about the pain. I look forward to the healing. Now you just heard me give you like a three minute spiel about teeth and you didn't really need to know all that. But I guess at the same rate, I always have used this as a bit of a, I have a podcast blog about why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and uh, hard bristle toothbrushes and cocaine don't mix. That's plain simple. <laughs> I mean, in reality, not many things really do mix well with cocaine, but definitely adding a hard bristle toothbrush and apparently uh, way to go. 20 year old Jesse. <laughs> Still cleaning your ass, man. But anyways, um, I don't really care about the pain. Like, it doesn't, it sucks. It sucks to hurt when it chews. It sucks to hurt whenever I talk. It sucks to have my face look like I got punched by Mike Tyson. And then these sutures are starting to slip. And I think it's because it's, 
that's not swollen anymore. But now my face looks like I like made like a whole 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 right side of my face, the, the from the upper jaw down to the lower jaw where he was doing his squeezing and pinching and everything. It's all yellow now. Um, and for like four days, when I'd smile, it was like half of my face. Uh, was suffering paralysis because only one half of my face would smile and the other half wouldn't move. Like I had Botox in my cheek or something. I look like half of a chipmunk. (laughs) And so, and you know, I mean, when I say I don't care about the pain, yes, the pain exists. Will I remember this pain in 400 days? I mean, I might remember it in 40 days. Then I'm definitely going to remember it in four days. I'm still going to have it in four days. But ultimately, I look forward to the healing. And where I think that this can benefit all of us is to realize that, yes, the pain of detox, the pain of going through those first week, two, five, seventeen, twenty-four of sobriety, it can suck. And the cravings can be overwhelming and we can play mental gymnastics and our body can be going through massive changes and our mind is trying to you know, play the tricks on us to get us to go back to the addiction because it's comfortable there and it knows that world. I, I want you to just ask yourself, is this pain, is this pain going to be worth all of the amazingness that you've either experienced before or heard is on the other side of the initial steps that it takes in order to start to achieve long-term sobriety? That's why I talked about on uh, episode... 274, right? That price of goodbye, things to stop doing in addiction recovery. And then when we go back to uh, seven things to avoid in early sobriety, the number 272, it was under this guise, this idea of like, yes, there's going to be some levels of pain. Again, that's subjective to your perspective. I'll tell you the pain of waking up in in a freezing cold bathtub thinking I was having a heart attack with my, all my bodily fluids, all four, uh, right, where there's yeah, is that pretty much four? Piss, shit, blood, vomit. I mean, yeah, I mean, those are the big ones, and maybe there's some snot thrown in there. But I think once you get to the, once you get to those other four, you pretty much can just say, I mean, yeah, if there's some snot running down your face, it's just mixed in with the blood at that point. And so I'm sitting there in that bathtub, and the pain of thinking that I was dying, the pain that my body was in, the pain that I went through over those next six weeks of detox, that's pain, right? And I looked forward to the healing. I'd go to the gym, I'd eat the good food, I'd clean my house, I read the books, I listened to the podcast, I formulated up plans, I put them to action, I just did not stop. Every single breath, every action I freaking took was all to support sobriety. All of it. Every fucking waking moment. I lived, I ate, I slept, I dreamed. Even my nightmares were about using to me, it was all about getting to that sixth week, that 12th week, that 18th, that 24th, getting to my birthday, June 15th, and being able to tell the social media land and all my friends that I had been six months sober and getting to my you know 41st birthday after a disastrous 40th birthday where I was blacked out by noon, got dumped by my girlfriend, don't remember most of the night, woke up in my house, my fucking house looked like I threw a fraternity party and everybody was out of town and I was the only one there. So I know pain. My my mouth being swollen, my knee freaking popped it again. I had to go have an x-ray on it today. Could be potentially looking at, uh, well, an MRI is definitely coming. Um, stability's not there. They were squeezing on it and poking on it and they said the meniscus could have finally come off. 
and I might have to be looking at some sort of reconstructive knee surgery. I mean, that's worst case scenario, but again, right? So it hurts. It sucks. I can't walk downstairs right now forward. I have to go down sideways and I'm holding on to railings and walls. And I'm <laughs> but I'll tell you this much, I can walk forward with relatively no pain. I just can't pivot, shift, go, <laughs> go side to side. But if I could just walk straight the whole time, I'm good, which means that I have continued my 10,000 steps every single day goal because I can walk forward on a treadmill in my office, um, I just can't, you know, in the restaurant when you're carrying a heavy tray and you've got to pivot right or left in order to go around a corner, that hurts. And it hurts so bad today, the pain finally broke past 10. And I was like, okay, we got to go, got to go get an x-ray. So, Because you have to get the x-ray to get the MRI. And I knew I needed an MRI. X-ray didn't tell anything. So the point being is I, I don't, okay, so the pain's here. All right. I can care about the pain. I, I can't. How can I affect it or direct it? Well, I can affect it and direct it by going and getting the X-ray, which will get me the MRI, which will tell me how bad this thing actually is. All right. If I'm not going to do any of that, right, then I accept it. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been icing it. Went to the chiropractor. Been doing physical therapy in my house with it. Right. I did as much as I could to affect it and direct it. After that, it's just like, well, the pain is here. I have to just accept that the pain is here, and it could take some time to heal, but. I've got this theory that the body is, in some various ways or another, always breaking down and building up. If you work out, you know that the muscles aren't built while you're in the gym. That's when you break them down. That's when you cause those micro tears in the muscles and then protein synthesis and amino acids and carbs and fat and all that stuff. They do their little work inside your body and the water mixes in with it and you grow muscle over time. You break them down at the gym, you build them up while you sleep and while you're recovering. So I have a theory that, you know, in a way, we're always breaking down and building up. Some things will, you know, quote unquote, break down, They will, but it's not like break down like the car's, you know, on fire on the side of the road. It's just the, the tire might be a little bit flat. So you've got to add some air or you got to put on a spare and get somewhere and have it fixed up like my leg. Right, so it's a little flat right now. Yeah, I'm gonna throw on my my good shoes. And I'm gonna try to walk forward as much as possible, and I'm gonna go somewhere and see if they can't, you know, put, fix the flat. If the pain is here, and I will just accept it, and I'm not gonna sit here and piss and moan and complain about it to anybody who will listen. I'll walk around that restaurant or here in the house with pain level nine all day long, and other than some wincing or some grimaces that I might make in front of people, they're all relatively, you know, kept out of the loop of what's going on because it's not, what are they going to do? I mean, they can't touch my freaking leg like Mr. Miyagi and just make it feel better. I wish that worked. I did try that, by the way. <laughs> I clapped my hands together real hard and rubbed them together really fast to create heat, and that didn't work. And then I started, you know, trying to figure, find some sort of meditative chance and nam ho nam ho That didn't work. I still enjoyed doing it, but it didn't make my knee feel better. So I, I care about the pain as much as one can. It's there. I will seek ways to remedy it. Um, but I look forward to the healing. And if you decide to subscribe to this idea that we're always breaking down and building up in one way or another, then you realize that, yes, sometimes multiple things will go down at the same time. I've got the mouse surgeries. I've got this knee issue. It turns out that the eyeglass place put the wrong prescription in my glasses. And I've been trying to figure out in the last month why... The, I've been getting like eye pain and I just thought it was just getting used to progressive glasses 
they put the wrong prescription in there. And so that's been causing some issues. So I'm getting new glass. It should be in this week. Um, I went out and got nice, good shoes for the restaurant job. So I should at least be able to keep my whole lower body aligned. I'll get the knee thing figured out. I'm, I'm surgery one of four. All of these surgeries should be done by no later than May. You have to do them. Um, you can do one side a week apart, but then you have to let everything heal for about six weeks, and then you can go to the other side. So the upside got done last week, and then the low side on the right gets done Monday after the Super Bowl, and then we'll wait six weeks for everything to heal up, get the sutures out so I can start eating on that side, so then we can move over to the left side. And then we'll put those two surgeries about 10 days apart, and there we go. And now it's just a matter of healing. So um, I want you to just think about that, right? So there is pain. How can you affect it? How can you direct it? And then at some point, if you, especially if you've ever hurt yourself in a serious way, you realize that, yes, you can rehab and you can do the exercises and you can ice it and heat it and all that other jazz. But at some point, it is just what it is, right? And I'm not going to take a bunch of painkillers to try to get it to go away because the last thing I need is opioids in my body. So I'll just... It'll just be what it bees. It just bees what it bees. I think they offered me Teradol today, which is an anti-inflammatory. And I said, let's let's see how this feels in the next few days. Because, again, I'm not even a big fan of taking ibuprofen. Uh, I just feel like the body can figure it out on its own if I just keep pumping it full of water and delicious, healthy food. So those are the big four quotes I wanted to talk about. We're going to wrap up this show because... I don't know if because is the best segue. Okay, so I wanted to go over, just do the damn thing, right? Just start. The best way to alleviate the anxiety and the stress about the actions that need to be taken are to just start taking an action. Something. What's the smallest step? For me, it's just dropping the question into Google Scholar, seeing what papers it brings up, reading over some papers, seeing how it answers the questions, and just start typing. Eventually, I've got something, and then I can edit that. Now, I start to alleviate the stress. Monday or Tuesday is always essay day. I set aside eight hours to get it done, and I've been finishing the essays in like six hours now. And if you all been listening linearly, you remember back when it was taking me like 25? It was taking me 25 hours to do an essay that I was getting like an 85% on. Now it's taking me six hours to do an essay I'm getting 100% on. So just as I said back then, that eventually I would habituate this process is very much in the stages of, of habituation. There's still some steps that I will be taking over the next few months that will further instill this, but I'm figuring it out. So just do the damn thing. Will you remember this in four days? Will it affect you emotionally the way it is now in four days? If you blow it out of proportion, then yes, it's still going to be screwing with you. Have you ever been right? Like really known you're right? Like without a freaking doubt, known you're right. And then the way you went off and told the person who was wrong from your summation and you knew you were right, and you went up, and the way you decided to drop your I know I'm right bomb on them was so blatantly disrespectful, you ended up apologizing. (laughs) Right? Like, you went at them like D-Day. And it's like, whoa, that was not necessary. And then you end up being the one to apologize. Well, I have certainly done that, and that's where I'm going with on the will this be affecting me this way emotionally in four days. There's times I know I'm right. There's times where I know in the moment I am jacked up. I am in reaction mode. And I just stopped myself and said, you know what, dude? 
you blow this out of proportion, you're going to be apologizing, and this is going to become a thing for way longer than the next five minutes. Take some deep breaths and just respond in an appropriate way. You do not need to blow things out of proportion, right? There, like my buddy Todd once said, it can take one second to do something that you spend the rest of your life trying to make amends for. I just don't want to be putting myself into those situations. Um, I don't care about the pain. I look forward to the healing. This is something I say to myself to just get myself in check. Be like, you know what? It hurts, but it's healing. It hurts and it's healing. It hurts, but it's healing. It's healing, it's healing, it's healing, it's healing. Just keep drinking water, eating healthy food, and exercising appropriately based off, you know, the medical advice that I'm getting from professionals. Then let's move forward. And if I cannot affect it or direct it, I accept it. I can affect doing the damn thing. I can direct remembering something in four days. I can affect and direct the the pain and the healing and how I decide to interpret it. And then when it's all said and done, I just accept that I am who I am. I have emotions. I'm a human. I can go off the hinges sometimes. Do my best not to do not to behave that way next time. And then whenever I do stay on the hinges and behave appropriately, I applaud myself. We fire off confetti in the tribe. We celebrate these little victories because that's what we utilize to encourage us and to motivate us to continue seeking insights about ourselves so that we can heal our sufferings, we can heal our traumas, and we can move on to creating our best life ever. So there's your four mottos. They're very important to me. I hope you've taken something from that. I'm going to get you out of here on this, and I swear I'm going to try so hard not to ramble on right now because it's already 11.36, and I would really like to go to bed at a decent hour. I've been up since 5 a.m. It's been a long day. So real fast, real fast. <laughs> so theories of psychology, right? Now, right now I am currently listening and reading to a bunch of different inputs. So not only do I have my theories of psychology book, I'm also reading this book called Traction. It's a business book that Augustine and I are reading together in order to build our businesses in a very strategic way. Um, I've also been listening to the 12-week year. I've also been listening to the Audible book, um, The Craving Mind. Um, I'm a big fan of this YouTuber named What If Alt Hist. Uh, I really think he breaks down historical stuff in, in a way that uh, is not only palatable and, you know, you can actually listen to this guy and it makes sense to me. Um, I love the way he talks about, you know, alternative forms of history or the way he just discusses history in general. He, he's one of those people like me who takes in a lot of inputs from a lot of places and somehow figures out how to bring them all together to one coherent thought. And so I'm bringing all of this stuff in, um, the historical accuracies that What If Halt Hiss brings, understanding more about the craving mind and what's going on whenever we begin to crave, the 12-week year and understanding motivation to accomplish things and how we can set down a path each and every day to take action towards the big goal that we have and be able to accomplish something really great every 12 weeks, as well as the traction book that talks about um, different ways that you can have insights and you can look at problems and you can seek solutions and you can ask yourself who are the people involved and what are the processes you go through in order to achieve things. And now I'm over here reading theories of psychology. And like I said at the beginning of the show, out the freaking gate, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Adolf Adler. I almost said Adolf Hitler. I'm sorry, Dr. Adler. Uh, although when, anytime you hear the name Adolf, come on, you know the, the word Hitler is right behind it. Um, so Adolf Adler. And what's really interesting about these guys 
And because I've been listening and reading all this historical stuff, like I just want to break something down for y'all real fast. Because it seems like our society thinks that we should be further along than we actually are. But there's actually no statistical proof, let alone any data, that proves that no matter who's talking about anything, that somehow the human species should be further along than they already are. Considering the great leaps that we have made since the late 1800s up to now, let's just say the 2020s. Right, because it's just phenomenal, right? Because I get it, right? Social justice issues and, you know, accepting people of different genders or different sexualities, um, orientations, all that jazz. Like, we have made phenomenal leaps since the 70s, which is really when social justice started to take off. And that's 50 years. And I get it. Some people have been downtrodden, like, not necessarily themselves, but people of their ilk have found themselves downtrodden for a long, long time. And yes, it's sort of like, you know what? We're not going to take it. We're fucking fed up of this. Can we all just really embrace equality and it's beautiful and it's amazing and I love watching the changes in society and I'm all for everybody getting along and sitting down amicably discussing how we can all embrace each other's uniqueness it's fascinating I don't think we're there I think we're all sitting at the table screaming at each other conniving behind each other's backs trying to get a bigger slice of a pie that there's infinite slices of so why are why are we fighting over a pie that will never run out. Like there's room in this world for, for all of us to succeed. And I don't know when it was ever put into our heads that there wasn't. But anyways, I want to go back in the past for a moment. So when, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing that I'm finding so interesting. We have people getting pissed off that we're not further along. And I get that the way the Americas were conquered was, yeah, it was abortive it no it was it was abysmal it was horrible it was neanderthal at best the way that we did this that being said we just happened to be the last civilization that chose to conquer a land the way that we did and then have the printing press and twitter show up because the way that the the european colonies came into the americas and in many ways um the african colonization and the south Af- american colonization was the way genghis khan and attila the hun and alexander the great and the romans and the greeks and napoleon and any of any of those invaders from back in the day they all came in slash burn millions i mean genghis khan killed like 80 million people so we have seen atrocities. What's really interesting to me is that I think it gets lost on us as a species as we've moved into this sort of modernism. And what if Altis talks about this a lot? We moved into this sort of modern way of behaving and, and experiencing our world. And when we think about psychology, we think about the study of the brain. We know more about outer space than we do the ocean floor. And we know more about the ocean floor than we do the human brain. And we barely know shit about outer space. <laughs> we got a couple of telescopes up there that take pictures of, of, you know, of planets from 400 million years ago that, based off current technology, no one's ever going to get to. I'm not even sure Dr. Spock and you know, Captain James T. Kirk's technology could get us to some of these places. So we know very little about the human brain. And what I'm noticing is this, the way that the timeline moves is when the Civil War ended in 1865, we saw dramatic technological improvements that came because of the Civil War. And so we move from the Civil War into these 1870s, right, where we really began to understand steel mills and the telephone and the electric light and the typewriter. We started to know the elevator and the motion pictures came about in the 1880s, 1890s, we, the electric generator. 
was invented and that allowed for people to have electricity, which eventually led, you know, to everybody having light bulbs and the whole deal. I mean, what is it? So 1904, Coca-Cola took cocaine out of their soda. Um, It was 1908, Henry Ford made the first uh, model something, I mean, one of the cars, probably off of one of the assembly lines. Um, I think it was in 1894, 1896, was it uh, a company that eventually became Bayer or Monsanto or DuPont, started coming up with pesticides. You start looking at the technological improvements that came. We were a civilization that was so focused on farming, you know, agriculture is what pulled us out of that nomadic era long, long, long time ago. And then we all just became farmers and agriculturists. And because of the farms and the agriculture, blacksmiths and, and other form of weavers and textile people back in, and we're talking back in the Middle Ages, were able to sit themselves down and actually begin to really draw major skills, not just be nomadic, following the herds and following the seasons. So 1865, Civil War ends. Major reformations start to go down. It gets battled back and forth within the country. That goes whatever way it goes. Obviously, didn't go great because we are still dealing with social justice issues today, but it began to start. Now you look into the 1890s, the 1900s, and it's this point in time. It's this point in time in the 1800s into the 1900s that we really begin to see an opportunity for the studies of the brain and the mind to take off. Um, was it, I read Freud's first paper is in 1884, and it was on the effects of cocaine um, on the brain. And so you got 1884, um, I think 1891, uh, oh, Theories of sexuality, 1905. So right, so about 1890 to the to the early 1900s, Freud starts releasing papers about his studies of the brain. Carl Jung, Adolf Adler, um, their theories and their first big publications were both in 1912. Right, so you start seeing this study of the brain really happening at the turn of the 20th century. Right, we're leaving the 1800s, we're going into the 1900s. For those of you who don't understand centuries, uh, whatever d- century we're in, so. Right now we're in the 2000s, um, you know, it's 2024. We're actually in the 21st century. When, when you, so when you're in the 1900s, you're actually in the 20th century. So I have still have to do math. It doesn't make sense to me sometimes either, but it's because that first century was zero to, <laughs> to 99. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that sidebar. So as we begin to move into the 20th century, because of the Industrial Revolution, and instead of having to do everything with manpower, machines were able to begin to help us. There was a lot of time that people who didn't used to have time now all of a sudden had. There was other jobs to be had. So people could study the mind. And next thing you know, the Carl Jungs, the Adolf Adlers, the Sigmund Freuds are able to start publishing their works. I mean, you got to think, back in the day, in the... In, in the young Freud and Adler world, we're looking at, you know, still insane asylums thinking that, you know, lobotomies were the way that you, that you cure hysteria. That if somebody had psychosis that you, you know, lock them in a straitjacket in a, in a padded room and you probably uh, electrocute their brain. Um, although electrocution probably is more of like a 1920s to 1960s kind of thing, it still was going down, right? Think about that. The sane asylums were taking people back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s and electrocuting them. That's the way that they thought they helped people with disorders. That was only 60, 70, 80 years ago. That's not that freaking long ago, okay? People who were born then, um, many of them are still alive. Dad born in 1955. They were electrocuting. Electroshock therapy was a thing in 1955. 
and he is now old enough to be talking on a supercomputer in his pocket. So you've got to understand the technological advancements that we've had, the ability to study the brain more and more and more and more. So as we begin to develop our this brain and this not this science and this knowledge of addiction and how these disorders are affecting us, I just want you to grasp the the finite amount of time that we as a species have actually been trying to figure this stuff out. It is small. We have spent more time figuring out food science and how to preserve and cook food or how to turn fermented vegetables and fruit into booze than we have been studying the brain. I mean, I know the Egyptians were the first recorded, I think, of the ones who had created some sort of alcohol beverage off of fermented fruits. The Sumars, the Sumerians, that whole civilization, they may have figured something out. Um, I once read this really cool historical thing that way back in the day when like Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were wandering the earth, um, that a lot of them the ones who survived were the ones who were able to eat fermented fruit off the forest floor, which would intoxicate them to some extent. And if they were able to survive, basically walking around their environment, and remember, this is back in the day when everything wanted to kill you. Like, just imagine the whole planet was Australia, right? (laughs) That's the running joke about Australia. Everything's big and wants to kill you. Well, back in the day, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of years ago. I mean, 25,000 years ago, our species was plogging around. I think we had a near uh, extinction event and there was only like five or 6,000 of us left somewhere on this planet. Uh, Again, I didn't do all the research to remember the exact intricacies of that data, but I do remember we got shrunk pretty freaking hardcore right, uh, right before and during an ice age. And so we made it through that. We we're plodding around the planet, right? And you eat, you find something that's edible and you eat it. And if it makes you intoxicated, but it fills your belly, you're probably going to go back to it because not only did it fill your belly, but it made you feel good. And when everything wants to kill you, feeling good is probably a very rare commodity that you're able to attain. So think about this, right? We've been figuring out ways to get intoxicated off rotten fruits and vegetables longer by a huge, I mean, if that's 25,000 years ago, and we've been studying the brain since the late 1890s, that's 130 years, 130 years studying the brain, 25,000 years eating rotten fruit off the forest floor, getting drunk. (laughs) It's a huge, huge gap. I mean, if we were going to try to put 25 years into like a, a a clock and make it all just one day. We have probably only been studying the brain since like 11.59 and 37 seconds until <laughs> it flipped to midnight, right? We've been studying the brain for 23 seconds. We've been studying how to get drunk off rotten fruit for a whole day. So just please, for a moment, when you notice that people aren't behaving the way you would prefer they conform to, that we are just now beginning to learn about human behavior and psychology and what drives us internally to behave the way that we behave. And because every brain's unique, this is why psychology isn't the study of the brain, it's the study of human behavior, because in order for it to comply with the scientific theory, you have to be able to observe it in order to be able to actually interpret it and then analyze it and, you know, run successful tests. Well, since we can't observe the brain doing brain things, because if we crack open the skull, it's just this big blob. What is that little kid from um, the Show Me the Money movie say that the human brain weighs eight pounds or something like that, right? Like you don't get to visually observe the brain doing what the brain does, but you can observe human behavior. And also there's going to inherently be some... uh, 
ways that it's not going to be able to be interpreted across the entire spectrum of the human population because each human is different. There's going to be those intricacies of, of behavior that just are going to be the outliers. So no matter how much we try to fit people into a box, there's going to be people who just crush right through the box. Yes, there will be stereotypical behaviors and generalizations that we can make based off of a huge data set, but inevitably there are going to be the outliers who just blatantly are not falling within the data set. And regardless of how much somebody falls within the conclusion that a scientist could attain to, eventually they're going to break through that and they're just going to do something else. And they're going to be like, well, there you go. No matter how many times we ran the test, this could not get all these humans to do the exact same thing, the exact same way, the exact same time over and over and over and over and over again. So when we get frustrated with ourselves that we don't understand how to, um, have conversations about orientation or gender equality, racial equality, and we try to figure out where systemic racism or systemic violence or systemic hatred and all the systemics that you could think of, where does this start? Where is it formed? Is it nature versus nurture? You know, Freud is over here telling us that we all want to, you know, bang our mom and murder our dad, or if you're a daughter, you want to bang your dad and murder your mom, and Carl Jung and Adolf Adler are over here talking about how you know a majority of this stuff is formulated in that zero to four-year-old stage, and you know, Jung thinks that your personality basically freezes till you hit puberty, and you know, Adolf Adler and you know, Jung want to discuss dream interpretations, and that you know, it's this, it's just intricate. There's a lot, and we're going to do a whole episode on those guys once I've understand it enough not to sound like a babbling moron whenever I try to repeat what I've read, I need to figure out how to interpret it better than I have concurrently to this moment. But my point being here is that we've got all these different ways of experiencing this psychology and these theories that have been come, become the norm that people still talk about. I mean, Myers-Briggs is one of the personality tests that people fall on. And they themselves uh, was a mother-daughter tandem. I think that they used to be in marketing and they were having a hard time finding work back in like the 60s and 70s or something. So they took Carl Jung's work. They added on judges and perceivers. Um, Carl Jung came up with introvert, extrovert, feeler, thinker, IMF, feeler, thinker. Um, what is it? I, introvert, extrovert, IMFJ. That's what I am. I am. Uh, I don't know what the M stands for. But anyways, um, then there's the judger and the perceiver. So Myers-Briggs, this mother-daughter team, they just took Carl Jung's work through a judger and perceiver at the back end of it and utilized it to create the Myers-Briggs test. It's, there's no scientific backing to it. They've They've it's been denounced now within the scientific community within the psychology field as just being, you know, it's fun to do, but it doesn't really state much because you might be introverted at one point in time in your life and then extroverted at a different, or you might be introverted uh, one day and then extroverted the next day. And it can all be based off of environment. It can be based off of skills, capabilities. Now I'm bringing in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm bringing in Dilt's pyramid. There's always the six human needs. Like all of this stuff is running in tandem. So when when we're trying to box ourselves and say, well, what worked for you or what worked for me? Or, you know, there's only this one way to be sober and there's only this one uh, model that you can do. It must be AA or it must be smart or it must be refuge or it must be Dharma. When we start screaming at each other, this is the only way, we are blowing past the obvious that there is no only way because there is not just one human on this planet. That one human on this planet, sure, that's their way. 
you start to add more and more people and the human brain is going to become unique in its observances and its interpretations and it's going to differently act and behave. It's just, I mean, it's the inevitability of it all, really. Doesn't it just seem like common sense when I say it out loud? So that's my little rant about this, that we have been studying the human brain for such a small amount of time. Yes, there are going to be theories that have now disproven, but just we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to Freud and Young and Adler. And, you know, then there was uh, Freud's daughter, Anne, and then there was Mary Klein. Uh, Mary Klein, and uh, she had her own little subset of people in the psychology field who believed her. And there was a whole other set who believed in Anna Freud because uh, Sigmund Freud really did like some psychoanalysis on his daughter for like four years. And that became the basis for like child therapy and childhood psychoanalysis type um, psychology. And again, I've just touched upon this. I've not dove into it yet. So there's all of this, but we're not throwing babies out with bathwater. Yes, things are going to get disproven, but we don't want to forget that the, these are the people who laid the foundation. They're the ones who got the ball rolling. What we do with that ball is up to us. And yes, considering that most of these people were coming from some sort of, you know, background that allowed them the opportunity to do this, they mostly they were not aristocrats, they were not rich, they were not wealthy. I think Carl Jung, you know, I think his mom was like a teacher, a seamstress, and his dad was definitely working with his hands. It wasn't like he came from money, you know, but at the same time, it's very easy to notice and judge the misguidedness of yesteryear through the lens of hindsight. And we have to be reminding ourselves regularly that yes, we can look back at the 1920s and you know the suffrage movement and the segregation and the statues being put up by the, the daughters of the Civil War back that was really happening in the early 1900s. We can see how Wall Street collapsed our economy in the 1920s that led to the Great Depression. We can see how the World War II yanked us out of that. We can see how all the opportunities that came from turning our entire country into a war machine for the better part of a decade. I mean, I think we got into, when was Pearl Harbor? I can't remember. I want to say 37, but I know the World War II ended in 45, right? And there was really this sort of American dream, idolized world that we made up, Rockefeller painted about from like 45 into the late 1950s. But once people who got left out of the American dream were watching everybody else succeed, the 60s brought social justice movements and that's when the race riots were going down the 70s was just a lot going on in the 70s inner cocaine and crack in the 80s and aids right into the 90s i did not have sex with that woman and the challenger blows up in 86 and you've got all just the chaos and you know the kurt cobains of the world you know the Jimi hendrixes the john lennons i mean we lose some of these uh, amazing poets that we admired. We go into the 2000s. Y2K does not destroy the planet, but then two airplanes definitely destroy our ego and you know bring us to our knees just for us to stand up stronger. Now we're into the Iraq war and that whole shenanigan thing. Oh, let's go ahead and collapse our real estate market. You know, Here comes President Obama, which leads right into President Trump. And now we've got all the chaos of COVID. And here we are. And we wonder why we think that there's a whole bunch of shit going down that we don't understand because we have been programmed over centuries and millennia to be farmers, to be herders. And we have asked ourselves as a species to radically change 
who we are, our functionability to become factory workers, to stay up late, to be driven by a clock and a light bulb. And we are asking ourselves to change in such a rapid way that we cannot adapt to the technological improvements that the species has made overall to this planet since the mid to late 1800s. You're looking at major, major technological improvements from 1870 to 2020. That is only 150 years. But for tens of thousands of years, we were basically running around with sharp weapons and blunt force objects hurting each other. Everything we have done as a species seems to have been led by this greed and desire to have what others have and to take it by force, mostly even if it wasn't necessary. Okay, let's just go over there and kill them. We don't need to. We could just have a conversation and maybe trade, or we could just take it. So just let's reel it in for a moment when we get pissed off at ourselves for not being able to handle the utter chaos that seemingly is flying around us at all times and realize We think that the iPhone's taken over. Man, imagine what those people back in the day who were riding horses into town and all of a sudden found the hitch gone because all of the motor cars were taken over the streets. I mean, it's insane. I watched the Yellowstone, 1883 to 1923. That's just a 40-year jump. But you go from people riding the Oregon Trail, where if you got a cut, you could get a staph infection. Or if you drank water out of the river, you could get dysentery and die. If you were bitten by a snake, it was like, fuck it, where's the bone saw? Now we're in the 1920s and people are driving around motor cars and they actually have medicines. I mean, frick it, uh, penicillin was invented during World War I. So we're talking about <laughs> it's penicillin. I mean, this is, now we've all got bottles of hydrogen peroxide in our closets. That's how... It's insane. But imagine what a bottle of hydrogen peroxide, how many thousands of lives that could have saved during any of the countless wars that happened before it was invented. We are rapidly evolving our technology, but our bodies and our brains cannot keep up. Let's just be gentle on ourselves when everything around us seems to be swirling faster and faster and faster and realize that we have created more information since the mid-20-teens than the human species had created its entire existence up to that point. We are just creating, creating, creating. And it doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon unless somebody decides to, you know, electromagnetic pulse um, over one of our countries and, you know, shut down the grid, killing the internet. Other than that, this ball is rolling, y'all. So let's be gentle with one another and realize that we're all addicted to something. We're all suffering from something. We all have a traumatic moment that turned into trauma that we relived, and we're seeking to heal in our own way. And it may not look like your way, feel like your way, sound like your way, but there are opportunities all around us for us to be empathetic, for us to embrace each other as just being the humans that we are. We are infallible. We make errors, we make mistakes, we scream when we should cry, we laugh when, when we should be somber. We don't know. Most people have no clue what to do with the emotions that they feel. They're doing the best they can with the resources they have at the time. And I don't expect this to turn into some kumbaya moment where we all just immediately embrace each other's uniqueness and idiosyncrasies as being awesomeness instead of seeing them as just degenerative behavior. But it's very important that we just step back for a moment and just, 
I spy with my naked eye that in 150 years, we are asking the mind and the body and our spirituality to adjust to so many things that it was inevitable that we weren't going to be able to keep up and that we were going to crack. What do we do moving forward? That's the personal responsibility. That's deciding not to blame, complain, and make excuses and say, okay, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people not accepting one another for how they were born or how they behave or things of that nature. Let's have conversations about that because nobody wants to be judged based off something they had no control over. I was born the way I was born. I'm tall, straight, white American male. I did no, two organisms decided to bump uglies in the night. And nine months later, this screaming, whiny little kid popped out and, you know, just feed me, feed me, sleep me, sleep me, change my diaper. I mean, it was a virus in my parents' life, right? But it's like, I had no control over any of that. What do I do once I got old enough to control my behaviors? That's where I started to take control. And that's where I gave a lot of it up to addiction. But here we are today, making different choices, deciding to be better because we know better. The insights lead to the motivation. The motivation leads to action. Actions encourage, and we can complete that loop. I have rambled on long enough about this. I just, it was blowing my mind the other day when I started noticing all of this stuff that was happening at the turn of the 20th century. And I was like, holy shit. Well, no wonder we think everything's going bonkers. Because we were a species that moved so slowly for so long, and now we're moving fast for so long, then no wonder we're spinning. No wonder we're like, what the hell is going on around here? Is it any wonder? So let's just have a chuckle. Crack open a soda water and share some stories of strife, of longing, of perseverance, of dedication, of journeying from sobriety to recovery. Because every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober. All right, my friends. Inclusivity over exclusivity. The power of positive energy. Release and flow. Every day is the best day of my life when I wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine. Shout out to Robert. Glow on. And again, if you're new to the show, this was really way out there. Go listen to some other ones. Don't judge me on this one. Especially that little 25-minute diatribe that I closed the show up with. I just had to get that off my chest. Like, there's just so much going through my brain right now. I just, it's like, time keep on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. All right, my friends. See you next week. Bye-bye. 